if you describe the characteristics of an actuary and then point out that they're regulated so you're going to get good people with good intent everybody says wow that's just extraordinary can you let me know where i can find them and if you say they're an actuary they say i didn't realize that so the wider point which we touched on is, is how do you define it in a way which isn't limiting but actually is about the nature of the skill set coupled with the integrity and the professionalism that comes with it that's important in areas that are quite close hi i'm belded mankis welcome to the purposeful strategist podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm joined by Stephen Mann, CEO of the IFOA, the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Stephen and I explore why they felt they needed to explicitly define their purpose and the role that newly defined purposes had in creating connection and change. Please join me for an episode full of provocative points of view and practical advice. Well, Stephen, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Maybe just to get us going, you could say a little bit about yourself and also about the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Thank you, Belden. My name's Stephen Mann. I'm Chief Executive at the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries and have been since January 2020. I've had got a very career, uh, predominantly in financial services, executive roles or director roles at Aviva UK. I was Chief Executive of Police Mutual for many years and I'd spent much of my career working with actuaries and uh, when the opportunity came to join the IFOA as it's called, it was a good opportunity to take that on. The Institute and Faculty of Actuaries has been around for over 150 years. The Institute was derived in England and Wales. The Faculty was derived in Scotland. They came together about 15 years or so ago, hence the IFOA. Uh, institute and faculty. Uh, we have about 35,000 members. It's a global organisation. It is a membership organisation. It is a professional body. It is a regulator. It is also a disciplinary function as well. So it covers lots of different things. Uh, members that range from young students through to seasoned actuaries who continue to pay their subs well into retirement. So it's a very diverse group. And of course, with all those sorts of things, the world is changing. And what actuaries did 20 to 30, 100 years ago, five years ago has changed very rapidly. And uh, one of the reasons I was brought in was to help implement the transformation of IFOA, which in turn uh, would lead to the transformation of the profession so that it remains a thriving and a vibrant one where its members are able to go wherever interesting work goes in the future. If you could just explain the difference between an actuary and various other things that sound similar, at least to the uninformed, a statistician, a financial analyst, uh, how are they all different? Well, that's a terrific question because it's one that we've been wrestling with ourselves Mm -hmm. and actually does lots of different things. It is rooted in advanced mathematics. It is about applying those skills to enable effective business judgments to be taken where an actuary is also different is that they are regulated by IFOA and the Financial Reporting Council to operate to high technical and professional standards, which many other professions don't. Our challenge, though, has been how do you define an actuary in a way which is not by reference to the roles that actuaries have historically done, 
which has historically been the sort of financial services, pensions, life investments. We have actuaries that have been working in the data division at Alibaba in Asia Pacific. We have actuaries working on HS2. Uh, we have actuaries that have provided some fantastic insight around excess mortality, given the impact of COVID-19. So our challenge is that it's a fantastically best kept secret. What we don't want to do is overdefine it in a way which probably limits what people might perceive it to be. So we are kicking off some work that talks about the skills that actuaries bring. And actually, we think that is likely to be recognised more easily than simply saying what an actuary is. So we have brand awareness to do, Belden, but I think there's a lot of potential here that we need to try and take forward. That's great. That maybe takes us into the whole question of, so what's the IFOA's purpose? What would you say that is? The IFOA's purpose is to be the voice of actuaries and to support, develop and be the voice of our members. Those words are important, as any purpose should be, and they came out of a quite extensive consultation with our council towards the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. We have a council which is elected by members, that is the voice of our membership under our constitution, and we thought, why not ask the voice of our members to help shape and define the purpose that we've settled on? So if you can, maybe just talk me through the process. It started with the council. What even raised that as a question for them? And then what happened after that? You know, who got involved? How long did it take? The IFOA and the council had been spending probably 18 months before I joined, asking a lot of really important questions about the future of the profession, the role of IFOA, the changes in society and the workplace. And I think while there is plenty of opportunity, I think some genuine concern that without sort of transforming the profession and transforming IFOA, that actuaries might become a sort of special interest group as opposed to a heavyweight profession that is able to influence some of the bigger issues of our day. So that was the big strategic concern. And that's obviously written in the context, particularly in the UK, of quite major changes to our financial services landscape, the shift to products where much of the risk is carried by consumers, the collapse over many years of defined benefit pension schemes, insurance companies offering products with guarantees, etc. So those have historically been very safe employment plans for actuaries. And while it continues to employ uh, large numbers of our members, uh, look, it's right that we should look at what the future holds, new domains, competition from data scientists, statisticians, and those sorts of things. And when I came in, my first task was to write up the strategic thinking and put it into a plan. Now, the way I write strategy is that you have to think fundamentally about what is your proposition to members and to other stakeholders. You also have to work out where you compete and where you compete to win. If you don't have a strategy that enables you to do that, then it's probably not a very good strategy. So in many ways, we started writing up the strategy to implement it and then had to circle back to say, in light of all those sort of things, what does that mean for our purpose? That's why we had got a little way into implementing the strategy before coming back. I'm not going to apologise for that. In many ways, it's important to remember that in March 2020, COVID began to affect many organisations. And I'm really pleased that we had started writing up the strategy because it enabled us to accelerate many key elements of it. However, you need to have a clear purpose and get that alignment coming through. Uh, so the process 
uh, involved numerous engagement sessions with council. We sought their views informally, and then we began to play back several different versions of what we'd heard. And each one may look identical or similar, but there's quite subtle differences. And there were some quite profound questions that we needed to resolve, I think. So what is the role of IFOA in the wider actuarial profession? That we're not the only actuarial body in the world. There is the Society of Actuaries in the US that has a, a slightly bigger membership base, but we're definitely in the top two. But there are many others that do excellent jobs uh, in terms of uh, supporting actuaries in other regions. So what's the role of IFOA in that global professional space? Uh, and if we're too bold, does it make us look as if we're empire grabbing? Does it uh, make it so ambitious that it doesn't resonate with our members at all? Uh, the other considerations that are worth calling out, we're a chartered body, so we have a public interest duty. But I don't think we've ever quite expressed in a way that is meaningful what that public interest duty means. It's lovely, but it's a bit nebulous and it's not really actionable. So when we settled on the voice of actuaries, we covered both of those stones, which is, look, we're not the only person who speaks up on behalf of actuaries, but we do think we want to be the one that is the go-to voice for actuaries worldwide. Uh, that's quite ambitious, and we're not at all suggesting we're the only ones who can do it, but we do want to be recognised as the authentic voice of that. And the second thing is around that public interest work, which is amazing work, often behind the scenes. But in many cases, we do have a duty to speak out in areas where people are relying on technical experts to call out either system failings, weaknesses or vulnerabilities in wider positions. And sort of as a consequence of that, we have a very active role in parliamentary consultations and we have a very active public affairs series. We launched as a consequence of this purpose a very thoughtful thought leadership series, challenging different concepts about uh, new economics, new leadership, and all those sorts of things, because being the voice means that we should be taking steps to make sure that those things are front of mind. The area that we probably wrestled with a little bit is that all of those things sound great, but we added a second element, which I talked about earlier, which is uh, part of our purpose also to support, develop, and be the voice of our members. And I think that might look as if it was a compromise to sort of meet an internal need. Probably came from a very direct question from some council members which says, this all looks great, but it's quite outward facing. So we think we need a purpose that also enables us to translate that message directly to our members. And I think that was the right call. Obviously, we have a purpose to support our members in their careers, in the nature of their roles. We're not a trade union. But there are many of our members who feel quite strongly about some big issues of the day, uh, and we shouldn't be shy about taking them forward. So it was a process of germination that took about three months, three or four engagement sessions, and we settled on the wording. The charm of it is that we were able to drop it into a strategic framework that was quite well developed and was already in implementation. And one of the things that helped us immediately with, and I've seen it elsewhere with purpose statements that sometimes they can be dropped in and have little or no relationship to the activities that an organization is then doing. But you know what we've tried to do is to create a very strong and clear line of sight to that purpose and the activities that we do. And just being selfish as a CEO, you know, when we uh, look at our colleagues who uh, work for IFOA, being able to create some connection between the work that they do 
and the outcomes that the organization was has been really valuable. So uh, it may not be uh, always obvious externally, but it's been a hugely powerful tool in making sure that my colleagues understand where they fit in and in motivating them to see where they support our members to do all the great stuff the purpose uh, inspires them to. And when you were doing that work, particularly with the council, was that all done, you know, kind of internally or did you bring in some kind of external support for that? We all did it internally. We were fortunate, Belden, that there'd been this sort of 18-month strategic exercise that council had been doing, very thoughtfully conceived over uh, uh, many years. So the exam questions and sort of the, the key themes that led to the purpose had already been surfaced. And I'm not going to say it was as simple as listening to those themes, then coming up with a few words just to summarise it, because the, the conversation was a much richer one than that. Where we were in the process, I certainly felt we had enough to come up with a purpose that was decision-grade and implementable. I'm sure if we were operating in a different environment and had more time, we might have been able to polish it a little bit. But I think sometimes you mustn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I played my part in writing it, but I was after something that I could act on and that was consequential. And it felt good enough for me. The other thing just to call out is that uh, like many organisations, we suffer an information overload and the temptation can be to simply ask for more information in the hope that that somehow unlocks the matrix of insight. I think we knew enough that this was likely to be right. So sometimes you have to lock and load and just go with it. Yeah. What would you say your strategy is? Our strategy at a headline level is to reposition the profession. Any profession, particularly a small global one, is vulnerable to huge changes geopolitically, to skill sets. You look at the nature of the work that actors have historically done, spreadsheets and all those sorts of things. They're very passe. You've got artificial intelligence, you've got robotics, you've got data scientists. This huge quest for data and insight that plays straight to actuary strengths. And a recognition that many of the traditional business models that have supported actuarial careers are under pressure themselves. So the repositioning the profession is more about making sure that our members and the profession more generally have the skill sets, the mindsets to be able to go wherever actuaries are needed and to give actuaries confidence to be able to create new areas that actuaries can work in. So that's really been the strategy that we talk about it as repositioning the profession. That whole emphasis on public duty, public good linked to the purpose. Obviously, if we have a voice, that makes the brand of actuaries more known. Hopefully that should act as a beacon for our members to go where they want to go. Uh, huge steps looking at our uh, learning and education programs, updating the competencies that we assess people on. I've always been a very strong believer that knowledge is often temporary, but competence is more permanent. But obviously in this world, that's moving very rapidly, having the right skill set to be able to adapt, evolve and compete is the most essential thing. So uh, coming out of the strategy has been a huge uh, look at how we educate, how we examine students. It's leading to a, a much more progressive way of how we support career long learning, focusing on obviously technical areas are important, but things like growth mindset, ensuring that our actuaries are able to feel that they have a valid voice and can go wherever it goes. So that repositioning the profession has led to a number of very discrete areas for us. It sounds in some ways like you're getting hit pretty much at the same time by 
a number of factors. I mean, that you've talked about AI and all this. Like, I get this image of sort of a group of people, or in some ways, sort of being squeezed. And so the question is, do we stay here and get squeezed, or do we launch out into the world and bring all these skills and capability and everything else to, to an enormous range of issues and opportunities that maybe in the past didn't even think about people like us because the data wasn't there, because the tools weren't there, because whatever. And that's uh, a terrific summary, Eldon. And I think, uh, look, there are actuaries working on the High Speed 2 program. We have actuaries working in pharma and uh, doing modeling around mortality, morbidity, all of those sorts of things. And the whole brand is going to be something that's going to be really important for us to look at. Of course, the way you've described it is terrific. Obviously, it would be unfair to describe these things as sequential. They're all overlapping. It's a more confused picture, but I think uh, the essence of how you described it is exactly right. You, you talked about a possible rebrand. Does that mean rethinking is the word actuary the best label or just kind of helping people understand more what that word means? It's the latter. One of the things that's really fascinating is that in a number of sectors, everybody knows what an actuary is, or they think they do. It's probably quite a limited definition and quite a restricted definition that's probably quite self-bounding. We did some secret shopper exercises a couple of years before I joined. Uh, what was quite interesting is if you describe the characteristics of an actuary and then point out that they're regulated, so you're going to get good people with good intent, everybody says, wow, that's just extraordinary. Can you let me know where I can find them? And if you say they're an actuary, they say, I didn't realize that. So the wider point, which we touched on earlier, is, is how do you define it in a way which isn't limiting, but actually is about the nature of the skill set, coupled with the integrity and the professionalism that comes with it. That's important in areas that are quite close. So things like data science, not to diminish some terrific data scientists out there, but that has been an area that actuaries have been heavily involved in for many years, and you know what you're going to get. You're going to get someone who is trained, operates to benchmark standards, and one of the concerns people have is around the ethical use of data. And we can guarantee, because we regulate actuaries on, uh, on ethics, so that is a really compelling proposition. So what we've got to do is to make sure that that proposition is articulated in a way which lands more readily with people who don't know they need an actuary yet. Yeah, yeah. As you've been going through this process, evolving the strategy and then clarifying the purpose and kind of joining the two together, what's surprised you most through that process? I think the fact that we're talking about 10 or 11 words here that are quite consequential. I think the other thing that has surprised me uh, perhaps as more of a challenge to myself is to make sure that because this purpose is so obvious, that it is not always obvious when we do stuff, how it links back to this. Uh, the whole organization is orientated around supporting this, but sometimes we don't always signal quite clearly enough that we're doing this because it meets this purpose. So I, I think note to self, if we were sort of doing this again, there'd probably be some more signposting of activity back to the purpose. And I'm quite logical, Eldon, so I quite like words and those sorts of things. With our colleagues, we have done some work to turn this into pictures, very motivational, more sort of graphic descriptions. Uh, and I think one of the things I've learned there as well is that is a very powerful way of engaging people and that simply the words in themselves aren't sufficient. It's how you tell the story. So yeah, it's been a good exercise. 
doing it again, there's probably a couple of things I might do a little differently. Mm -hmm. And what's been the most difficult part? I think the difficult part has been convincing people that a purpose is essential. People have different views on strategies, and I'm not going to claim that organizations that don't have a clear purpose are bad organizations at all. But I think in a member-led organization where you know strategic skills, strategic planning skills come from some council members, but they're largely coming from the CEO that you brought in, trying to convince people a purpose is important has been a challenge. This is not unique to IFOA. It's something I've experienced somewhere else. It can sometimes seem to some board or non-executives or stakeholders that they're sort of fluffy words and uh, look, actually, let's get on in the meat of the delivery and what's really important. But I think if you come up with an integrated strategic framework that talks about your proposition, we are competing. So it's quite crunchy. If you've got a clear sense of how you're going to measure success, that's quite crunchy. Uh, but actually, if you put it in that context of why you need a purpose to hold it all together, that's why it's essential for me. But I said, I think some of the challenges we've had, and to be fair, I don't want to overblow it because everybody was very supportive. But I think nevertheless, there still is a little bit, okay, so how does this fit in? And is this really important? Aren't you really just playing around with a few words, Stephen? I'm over-exaggerating to make the point, but it is an experience I've had elsewhere, which is how do you convince people that having a purpose is essential as part of your wider strategic framework to be the glue that holds it together? Sure. Most professional bodies that I've had any kind of contact with, you don't have to scratch too far to find that there is this bigger public good that's part of the reason they're there. And just digging that out and articulating that seems to me a very natural thing to do. So it's interesting to hear that it sort of shows up in lots of places. Yeah, it does. And I think part of it, Golden, is a very receptive audience. That comes from the history of the public interest duty that comes with our Royal Chartered status. I think the challenge, of course, is these aren't just words. These are a sharpening of that public interest statement. So it's hard for anybody to disagree with. It's very motivational. You know, We know when we ask our members what they want IFOA to do, they do want us to have a voice on some of the bigger issues of the day, obviously framed charmingly, thoughtfully. Uh, but actually what we had to explain, I think this is where it was a little bit difficult, in a, in a group of 30 trying to come up with a purpose that has consequences was harder. So very receptive uh, audience at landing zone, public interest, great framing. But of course, I've called out a couple of things that are quite crunchy, which is what's the role of IFOA in the wider profession? And how should our purpose reflect? That requires a decision to be taken. And you can imagine that we took some time to get that right. Yeah. And then that feeds back into what do you say the purpose is? Exactly. Exactly. What's the impact been on your leadership team? I have quite a programmatic way to delivering strategies. So uh, underneath this purpose is a whole corporate plan where the outcomes uh, are aligned to achieving this purpose and the goals of the strategy. I think what it's enabled us to do is to have conversations internally and tell stories. Uh, one of the most understated leadership skills is to bring strategy to life. None of us are really motivated by flowcharts, Gantt charts and the rest. But I can talk about work that some of our members did around excess mortality. It was regularly published in newspapers at a time where experts were disparaged. Uh, you know, it was fantastic that uh, our members there were 
able to be listened as trusted experts. I love the fact that in many other areas, uh, whether it's climate, whether it's DEI, whether it's some of the big challenges facing retirement provision in the UK, that actuaries are leading some of the complex and technical issues that are helping us meet our public good because the public interest is surely that the UK has a sustainable, thriving, trusted financial services framework. And I look at huge chunks of what our members are doing there and they're playing a really material role in making it safe, vibrant and transformative for our members. So I just use that as a real example of me being able to tell stories about what our members are doing, linking it back to the purpose. Where it's been really valuable for myself and my team is that one of the challenges I've experienced around purposes in other organisations is people in what I call particularly back office functions saying, I don't know how I fit in and how does my role in finance enable me to make the world happier? Just paraphrasing here. And of course, the charm of telling these stories is that we can link it all together. So someone in operations, if you've got an actuary out on the front line, making sure their service experience is seamless, it's really important. Making sure that uh, uh, in the small number of cases that we have to look at where some of our members have fallen short of what we might have expected, is to make sure that people are aware of that because it uh, reinforces the fact that when you have an actuary, they can be trusted. So for me, it's enabled the storytelling around a common thread right throughout the organisation. I know if you were to speak to my colleagues, they'd feel the same way. Yeah. And how have you personally been changed through the process? I and mean, it sounds like this isn't the first time you've been on this journey. What have you learned this time? The big learnings have been about making it actionable, making sure that you align the organisation behind it. My first experience of purposes was an organisation who was quite clear that its purpose was to create shareholder value. And sort of that's interesting. I think the, the thoughts have moved on. Of course, any organisation needs to be able to be profitable, to be able to be run well, to meet its regulatory obligations, to have engaged colleagues. But I think 20, 30 years ago, it was always hard to find a way in which you could knit that around a common purpose. So I think one of the things I've learned is that the purpose actually is the hook to guide all of these things to around. And it does lead to a much more integrated organisation. I look at it when we have our colleague engagement schools, over 94% know where they fit in to deliver the strategy. So, you know, that's great. We're a small organisation building, so you'd expect a good score. But I do think making the purpose actionable and showing it as the link that binds the organisation together has enabled me to do that in a way that I perhaps wouldn't have been able to have done uh, without that experience sort of 15 to 20 years ago. Hmm. And what advice might you give to, you know, a leader in a different organization who was wrestling with what's our purpose and how do I connect it with the strategy? I mean, I think make sure they're connected. I know it sounds obvious. I, I, have, I have come across organizations that have a purpose that bears little resemblance to their strategy. And look, in the nicest possible way, if you've got an organization whose sole focus is on profit, then don't have a purpose that is inconsistent with that. We always have debates about certain organizations about their alignment of purpose with their strategy. And I think it's a bad place to be because customers will be sold on the purpose, but their experience will be entirely different. So I think my advice would be is to make them congruent. You know, it can be very tempting to have a purpose which is hugely noble and hugely transformative. But if your business model is not seeking to do that, 
it's the wrong purpose. So, you know, if one were a chief exec and you realized, oops, yeah, that's where I am. What would you advise them to do? Change the purpose and go, no, no, look, we're a business. We're here to make money. We'll treat you properly because that's just good business, but don't expect anything more. Or would you say, no, you really need to dig a bit deeper and figure out how you change your business model? I think it depends on your long-term strategy. You know, I've done purpose work where actually what the organization needed immediately was transformation and uh, it probably needed sort of resuscitation immediately. And that's okay because actually the purpose downwards is to uh, get the patient off the table. Uh, But I think you still have to be able to answer the question, so what then? There needs to be some connection. I think I would say if there is no chance of the business ever being able to be in a position to deliver most of that purpose within a few years, then I think you need to tack back. But I think it can be something at a stage where you're looking to uh, retrench, recover, regroup, that having a clear description of your landing zone that is a bit more motivational than hope we get through. But it's all about being conscious about it. Good. What, what haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we talked about that we ought to touch on? I guess I'd probably say the time frame for the purpose to come to life. Yeah. My own belief is that purpose should be reasonably permanent. Obviously, strategies shouldn't be changed every year. Otherwise, they're not a strategy. But of course, strategies evolve. There's flux in them and so on. But I think a purpose shouldn't be changing too regularly. Uh, So there is a little bit about making sure that it is reasonably future-proof. And of course, none of us can map a purpose out 10 to 15 years down the line. I'm not also suggesting that people should end up with a purpose that's so no regrets, it's meaningless. But but I think the question is, what's your strategic horizon and what's your purposeful horizon? They're probably a little bit different, but I think the purposeful needs to be a little bit longer and be able to carry it through. So that was probably how I would answer it. That's great. That's great. Stephen, thank you very much. Lots of really, I think, pithy, useful nuggets in there. Thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure. Great conversation, Belden. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.